You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. This is the story of the black hole. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. A journey which begins where everything ends. And back in the booth also is Mr. El Goro. Hi, guys. I'm happy to be here, and I shall now conduct the rest of this episode using my completely unexplained power of ESP. With the little animations in your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Apparently robots know ESP, too? Sure. You know, it works. Okay. Look, they're advanced. They're advanced. Don't question. Don't question, Mike. We're, we're, do- we're doing the black hole today. We got to. Yeah, no, don't question. No question. You can't improve upon perfection. 
Sci-Fi Month continues on the projection booth with a look at Gary Nelson's 1979 film, as David said, The Black Hole. It's the story of a group of astronauts who, after an unscheduled course correction, run across the missing ship The Cygnus, which is in stasis just outside of a massive black hole. It is something of a retelling of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, with Maximilian Schell playing Captain Nemo by way of Dr. Hans Reinhardt. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the ending of this. So if you haven't seen The Black Hole, check it out and come back after you have. It's on Disney+. Plus. We will still be here. And we, we heartily recommend it. You need to do this. Go watch it right now and then come back. And be warned that there's an orchestration that just starts, so it's just music over a black screen. For it's, like it's an overture! Yeah. That's what the, the classy movies did an overture. We'll get into it. Normally they say overture on the screen. This just is black with music. That's Disney Home Video. They're like, you know, fuck it. Get it out there. El Goro, when was the first time you saw the black hole, and what did you think? I had to have been about five or six years old. We actually rented this from a library of all places. And even at that age, you know, I was really into science fiction and any th- sort of things Star Wars related. And I, I think I just grabbed it off the shelf. It's like, hey, mom, can I watch this? Dropping the black hole on a five or six, or six year old is a terrible thing to do to a child. And for years, the only memory I really had of this film was the harrowing final sequence when I discovered that robots can indeed go to hell. And uh, yeah, it's kind of always been with me ever since. And David, how about you? The year is 1979. My mother, who does not allow me to see PG movies, has decided for whatever reason, I guess because it is technically a Walt Disney Productions movie, to take me to the black hole. I don't remember if my brother was there, who would have been three and a half years younger, like uh, like like three or four. I went to see this movie in the movie theater, and it, I have never ever forgotten it. And and if you've seen the movie, you can understand why. It is a traumatizing movie for a young person. But I will say, it has permanently affected my approach to cinema as a filmmaker and as a film lover it it absolutely has like where my my friends and other people were into star wars um which i just i did not see that first run it was just a, i was a little too young for it i was into the black hole i thought the black hole was just so much cooler and deeper and to this day has and and we're going to get to this i hope has one of the most or possibly the most horrific scenes i have ever seen in a film Truly, it, it it creeps me out to this day, and it might just be because I saw it when I was seven, but th- there's a scene that just freaks me the hell out. And if I ever do anything in any movie that is that effective, I will probably die happy. I think I might know what scene you're talking about, but we'll definitely get there. You know, it's the one that everybody, like, every child has been permanently, it's the close-up of the dude under the mask, and it's horrifying. That's not the one I was thinking. I was thinking of Anthony Perkins holding up that binder. Well, no, it's the same scene. It's the he he, that, he gets Cuisinarded right after that, and that's the first time I ever saw a major character. I'm seven. A major character dying brutally on screen in a Walt Disney movie. I don't remember the first time I saw this. I think it must have been on cable or a VHS rental. I told this story a couple weeks ago when we were talking about The Empire Strikes Back that I was really into Star Wars, and rather than getting uh, any sort of Star Wars paraphernalia from some of my relatives, I got a uh, set of black hole sheets and a Space 1999 blanket. Wow! You like you were cool before it was cool! 
I was very off-brand with that. Uh wasn't too happy about that, but I definitely was familiar with the black hole from sleeping on the black hole every single night. There's a joke in there There's somewhere, a, I was just about to say, I'm too classy look, to go for it. Look, it's Pride Month, and as the obligatory gay man on this podcast, I feel the need to make a black hole joke right now. I'll come up with it later, but Mike sleeping on the black hole every night, it's like, okay, well, check back later. I'll have something. I'll have now something. I have to pay for it. I'm just enamored, though, with the, with the idea that whilst everybody else was into Star Wars, you had Space 1999 and Black Hole. You were like the Kmart of science fiction fans, and I absolutely love it. It's so much more textured. I remember it in little snatches of images. I definitely was way into Old Bob and Vincent. Uh, really liked Maximilian. So I was all about the robots in this. And, of course... Ernest Borgnine. I mean, any movie with Ernest Borgnine. What a cast this movie has. It's just amazing. Top to bottom, just these... I mean, none of them are necessarily what you would classify as huge, huge stars from a box office perspective, but they just have such incredible character. I mean, even Joseph Bottoms, who is uh, kind of the most generic out of all of them, he still has these great little moments in this movie. He, pl- he plays Joseph Bottoms, basically. But I think we Fair should enough. take, like, two steps back and set the stage for for our listeners of what was going on not only in the culture but at Walt Disney Studios at the time when this was happening so like it, it basically um this film had been in development a long time since what 1975 i think i read 74 is from what 74? i heard but yeah okay basically it predated star wars by a lot and basically what happened was once star wars happened um, and I know this because I'm, you know, making a documentary on another film that released in 1977. You cannot underemphasize how much Star Wars changed everything in Hollywood. And, and this comes two years after Jaws basically changed everything in Hollywood because before Jaws, these movies were like opened in like basically big movies. I'm talking about A pictures, studio A pictures. They would open in cities, uh, in a few theaters. And then if they were successful, uh, they would spread out in this organic way. And that way they kept the marketing costs low and, and they could, and they can engender hits and kind of run these movies for like a year and a half. Uh, you know, of course, pre home video basically. And, uh, what Jaws did, which was so crazy is they decided Universal was so high on this movie uh, off of a couple of preview screenings that they were like, all right, we're going to open this movie in like, Hundreds of theaters at once and hundred, there weren't really thousands of theaters to open it in the 70s. That was a wide saturation release, like 700, 800 theaters or whatever it was. And so they decided to do that. And because they did that, they had to have a big marketing push, which was a lot of money. Everyone thought they were crazy. And then Jaws became the biggest hit ever. It beat everything. It beat Gone, Gone with the Wind was the, the record holder for a really long time because it would just run and run and run. But The Godfather, I think, was number two. The Exorcist was number three. And, and Jaws just obliterated everything, like obliterated it. And, and so everyone's like, Oh, wait, we need these big event pictures. And then what happened with Star Wars was Star Wars obliterated Jaws in this way that was like even more profound. And so every studio, every single studio was like, what sci-fi mo- big budget movie can we do to like blast the audiences across the, the, the country in Dolby stereo? Because that apparently is what everybody wants. And what Disney did, because Disney was in this weird place. Um, they were in a slump 
they they had not had a very big hit since like the late 60s uh i believe with the jungle book which was a very big hit it was like the second highest grossing movie of the year but all through the 70s they were doing these cheap live action movies which i personally love and i mike i will say if we could do a series on the ron miller era disney live action movies far too few of them are up on disney plus some of them are uh, a lot of them are not unfortunately but you got stuff like North Avenue Irregulars, No Deposit, No Return, Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday is one of the more better ones. And uh, like literally like three or four dozen movies that they would do for very little money. That was their business. And so when they said they wanted to do a big sci-fi movie and have it cost $20 million, which was by far the biggest budget movie in, Warner, in uh, Disney history, basically there were these people fighting within Disney – about what the movie should be. Should it be a dark sci-fi movie? Like, like the, the whole genesis was a very dark Captain Nemo, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where these people come across this ship run by a madman who's obsessed with the black hole, wants to go in there, mutiny, craziness stuff happens, and, you know, that's that's the movie. This originally started before Star Wars was around. The original impetus for this was to make the bigger and better disaster film because this was the age of disaster films. And so my wife's watching this with me yesterday and she sees Ernest Borgnine. She's like, is this before or after the Poseidon adventure? And I'm Oh, way after. Yeah. This is way <laughs> after, but this is definitely influenced by the Poseidon adventure. And that was supposed to be the thing was like, this was Poseidon adventure in space was like, there was a disaster on space probe one. And now we have to get these people back. And now Rather than, you know, because it was like the airport movies, too, where it was like, okay, well, this one crashes here, or this one does this, and you've got and one of them crashed in the water, and then you've got the Concorde, and they were building up to go, kind of like the Fast and Furious movies, they're building up to go out into space, and they had Airplane 2 basically made fun of that, but there were other films where they were getting close to going out into space and this would have taken the disaster movie out into space so that was the original thought of this and then it kind of morphed i think as it went through like i mean what a dozen writers worked on this thing throughout the years it definitely felt like it yeah and what's fascinating about this movie just saying the, the fact that it does exist at the intersection of these big crests of of blockbusters you know you it was originally intended to be to be uh, capitalizing upon the disaster craze but as you said star wars changed everything and the reconfiguring of this into a vehicle that would be closer to the sensibilities of star wars from that original disaster movie mold it it, it leaves a very interesting film, a slightly uneven film, <laughs> but a very interesting one. The, the thing about this movie and, and, and you know, is the tone of it and what it wants to be is so schizophrenic and crazy. And that's really, like, I think, one of the reasons that I'm still fascinated by it because it, it you know, you can see the disaster movie origins. And in one, and speaking on that, actually, you can't underemphasize how not like Disney. That approach is a bigger budget movie, uh, an epic movie, a disaster movie. None of these things are Walt Disney. So for them to take this on, they're taking on something that is way, 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 way out of their comfort zone, which is why then you see, oh, there are a couple of cute robots for kids. Oh, like, you know, oh, but there's a madman who literally murdered his entire crew. Oh, my God. It is a really dark, twisted 
movie that like ostensibly is for kids because you have these cute like robots and like space battles and stuff but then you have like again the most horrifying one of the most horrifying sequences i've ever seen in a movie and 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 this doom this 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 incredible sense of doom that permeates the entire movie up from like about five minutes in where they like see the ship uh, and John Barry's score, by the way, we we have to talk about that because John Barry's score is really a lot of the the the, the tension in this movie comes from his like massive, not like John Williams at all, orchestral, bombastic, crazy, amazing score. It's a gigantic production for Disney. I mean, it took over everything, and and it and it's this weird like not kids movie not it's a sci-fi movie but is it like dark is it like like nobody knew what to do with it and even to this day watching it it's just like it's it's kind of like having a steak dinner you know with spaghetti on top of it or something it's like it's like this weird it no it's this weird thing it's like okay it's unique and everything's done well but it's like and then and then there's the ending which is a whole nother conversation which we need to have which is nobody even the lovers of this movie like me can really defend this ending they didn't know what to do. It's amazing that Gary Nelson helmed this because he was not the sci-fi guy. The previous movie that he had made that wasn't a TV movie was Freaky Friday, which is little science fiction, little magical, that kind of stuff. But it's not like he's the Steven Spielberg or George Lucas of his day. You know, it's not like they're even going to like another like uh, Robert Wise. No, but this was the Disney team. I mean, you know, you look at Frank Phillips, ASC, shot it. Frank Phillips is a very, you know, renowned cinematographer, but he basically did a lot of those cheap-ass Disney movies that, like, you know, look like, you know, they were shot in two seconds. I mean, and this all has to do with – and the name you're going to keep coming back to is a guy named Ron Miller. Ron Miller – was Disney's son-in-law, I think. Is that right? I think he was a yeah, son-in-law. Yeah, he, he uh, married his daughter, if I recall correctly. Football guy. Football guy. And he was this big, like, intimidating dude who was in charge, I believe, of Disney production for a, a, at least – I don't have it in front of me, but it had to be at least 15 years. Because I, I want to say he came out of it in the 60s, like, you know, when the Dexter Riley movies, like Kurt Russell Dexter Riley movies were happening. You can see his name on those credits, but he was producing for Disney all up through the black hole, past the black hole and into the, the early eighties before he left. But he basically, his whole thing was, you want it cheap? We're going to shoot it in freaking Burbank. If it's not on the Disney lot, it will be five minutes drive from the Disney lot at the, the end of the North Avenue of regulars, which allegedly takes place in New England. You see Cloris Leachman and all these women with, in the big, you know, car chase. Passing by signs that literally have the 134 on them. Like, literally, 134, Pasadena, <laughs> like, literally in frame. Like, they did not care. They were just like, yeah, they're in, you know, Connecticut with a Pasadena in it or whatever. But Ron Miller was not some guy who was going to spend a lot of money or take a lot of risks. So for this movie to come out of Disney, this indicates an enormous amount of of forces that were all probably, you know, colliding with each other to make this mishmash of a movie. And it is that sort of Disney house style that you were alluding to there that really does define a lot of the technical expertise of this film. But also with that, the disquieting or the, the disjointed view of the film of how flat a lot of the cinematography seems. I mean, it, it, one of the, I was describing this film to fr- friends of mine who had never seen it. Put in, put in this way, this film was released the same year as Alien. 
and yet it looks like it came out a decade before. It was made on double the budget of Alien, and it looks like it cost half as much. And so much of that, and so much of it has to do with the way it was shot. And I'm not counting the special effects and the incredible matte work that was done in this movie, because from a technical standpoint, there is a lot of spectacular craftsmanship in this movie. But so much of it gets drawn down by the kind of bog standard middle of the road way of shooting. And I, that, that feels like it's so much of a piece with what Disney was doing. Cause as you said, this was an in-house production. They, they outsourced none of this. It all came directly from Disney. Even to the point of which they, I believe in, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Mike, but this is, this is something that I remember reading and I hope it's correct. I believe they tried to license John Dykstra's motion camera setup from that he did on Star Wars. He either wouldn't let them or wanted too much money, <laughs> which for, to Ron Miller would probably be any money. Um, and so Disney spent a ton of money making their own motion control camera rigs. And it was called, I think, Aces. Is that right? Or am I getting it wrong? Aces. No, yeah, it was Aces. It's Aces. Yeah. And, and, and it, and th- this was a lot of R&D. Like these, like, to do a motion control shot in the 70s is not something, especially a full, like, not for miniatures. I mean, because a lot of the, the TIE fighters and all that stuff, you see that the motion control cameras, those are stripped down cameras that were, that were, that had, that were unblimped, which means that they had no soundproofing on them because he didn't need it. There were, all the sound was going to be restored for, um, Star Wars, but it's like for the black hole, there's one scene where they're having dinner. Literally, the camera dollies laterally across these people having dinner. So it's a full camera and there's dialogue. It's probably all looped, but it was a full camera and it's out the window. You can see the background of the gigantic spaceship, which moves proportionally to that camera. There is absolutely no way they could have done that without motion control. You're talking about the flat look. It's like that. It's it's less about a flat look and more about a risk averse look. It's like they 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 simultaneously wanted to risk a lot and then risk almost nothing, depending on what aspect you're looking at. It's it's very odd. I mean, in those days in the seventies, they were still running movies at drive-ins a lot. And so if you shot a movie too dark, and and you can read Francis Coppola talks about this with Gordon Willis when they shot The Godfather's. They would have to print those prints up because it wouldn't show up at the drive-in, which, of course, you know, degraded the image. So Disney was always very – especially the Disney productions were always very, very um, neutral looking. Like Everything was properly lit. There weren't a lot of like high contrast – like Alien. Oh, my God. It's like, you know, all like key lights with shadows. It's like almost film noir half the time. But the black hole is like this. Everything is lit. Like, you know, even when there are shadows, it's like they're gray shadows. They're not pitch black shadows. We're like, like spaces, even the way space looks. You were talking about Peter Ellenshaw's insanely beautiful work. Uh, and we, we have to go into that because the, the, the mats and the models and the miniatures on this are, I think, of legend. I think anybody who ever wanted to get into, to this kind of special effects, this is one of their movies that they go to because the, it's just so intricate and gorgeous and lovely. But even space isn't black. It's like this purple blue. It's like, it's like you look at it and especially on the transfers, the HD transfers. If you see a print, it's not, it's, it's not as printed up and it shouldn't be. It's a little too bright on video, honestly, like even with Disney plus and everything, but it's, 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 it's this, tactile approachable space like you know like all of those rooms are like you know they're 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 utilitarian but everything is so lit 
it's its own kind of very unique and strange style. I mean, I do like the stuff that's shot on Reinhardt's ship, where it feels like there's kind of a key light way up above, and it, I, I think that that's stylistically very interesting. But then there are other parts where it's just like, okay, you know, when they go into like the corridors and things, it's just like, yeah, it is very, very flat. And even though they are doing some great special effects, there are so many times where I'm just like, God, this looks like it was shot in front of a blue screen, and it doesn't look that good. There's a moment when they're on like a trolley going across, you know, going along, and I'm just like, okay, yep, I can really see those lines on everybody. Uh, having Yvette Mamou's hair, the, the lines of that were really kind of chunky, and it's like, okay. Yeah, that digital composited halo that shows up around sometimes when it's not done quite right. There have been aspects of kind of keying out since like the 1940s with Song of the South. Um, it got much better, uh, again with Disney, uh, with Mary Poppins. They got really, really good at it. But even in the seventies, these were still opticals and these were still like you had to run it through the machine and see if it worked. And if it didn't work, you'll run it through again and you tweak something and you try to line it up. This was all very trial and error and laborious and time consuming and, and in the end of the expensive. But I mean, you know, as compared to those gigantic sets or those mats or, or, you know, anything else. I mean, this was also the first digitally recorded score, I believe, in, in history or something like that, or, or one of them. Yeah, that's what I was reading about. It, that it was, it was certainly advertised as that. I couldn't f- find verification on it, but that's definitely something that they put forward in the uh, marketing for the film. To read that story that's in the uh, liner notes for the CD. Oh my god, yes. How they had to go through so much to try to restore the score and be able to not go through any sort of analog interface in order to get the score from its original version onto a CD. Oh my god, it just sounded horrific. <laughs> All of the like different people that they would go to and they'd be like, oh sure, I know how to use this machine, but there's no machines left alive that will do this. This is a transitional movie. It was a transitional movie for the Walt Disney Company and Walt Disney Productions. Basically, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came on board a couple years later and formed Touchstone Pictures, which rebranded anything that wasn't G-rated and kind of freed up Disney to do bigger, more successful movies that, that you know, might – horrify children the way the black hole did and 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 have some cover you know like touchstone and and then later hollywood pictures within the company it was like it was transformative technically it was a a a crazy mixture of old school filmmaking and old school practical effects and old school mats with these like much more like the motion control rig Whatever advances in opticals they, that they managed to, to get, even though you can still, you know, the, the lines are still a little bit whatever. I mean, that, that shot of the meteor alone could not have been done like five or 10 years before this film had been done. I mean, it, it, it was, that is such a impactful, crazy, it, it, that shot still holds up. That shot is still really good. The meteor kind of barreling down the thing. That is one of the best moments in this movie. And that's one of those moments, you know, how I talked about how I remembered this in Snatches. That was one of them. So that, the ending, we, I mentioned uh, Anthony Perkins biting it. You know, you talked about pulling the mask off of the guy. Even though I mix up that with Flash Gordon. So I keep thinking that when he pulls off the mask that the eyes are going to go crazy. But that was the next year. 
I adore Flash Gordon. I adore that movie. I don't adore it the way that I adore the black hole because the black hole just impacted me so much. But I, I do want to say that Flash Gordon is a consistent, tonally consistent film. You, it starts off as one film, it goes through it as one film, and it ends as one film. It's that campy, crazy, flashy, crazy movie and wonderful. The black hole, it's like there are these moments and you were t- like, we we're talking about the meteor and it's like, and the mask and like, there are these moments that are so great and impactful. Like, or, or the first moment that they walk into the main chamber with all of those people, like when they first meet Reinhardt. And it's like, you're looking at it was like, was that a set? Where that was that just like was that put together optically and and I believe I believe there were like mats with like little like boxes of of activity that they would have shot and just, but it's it's gorgeous. There's real awe in this movie, along with the silliness, along with the stuff that doesn't work. Like there are moments of actual awe. I could decry some of the look of the film and certainly can uh, take some issue with the weird tonal shifts that will happen between cuts at times. But there are legitimately moments where you just have to appreciate the sheer amount of craftsmanship that went into this. And it still largely holds up. There are some moments where, yeah, you can see the seams a little bit. And I don't think that this film is quite as immortal as, again, a film from 1979 like Alien. But there's still enough to this that it should be regarded for what they were able to accomplish and not simply forgotten or uh, <laughs> mocked for some of the failings of the film. I mean, Alien is a much better film. Let's just put Certainly. that out there. It, Alien is a much better movie. Like, as a movie, it's a much better movie. Um, Alien is, is – I, I mean, I can't say enough great things about Alien. I think I think it's a kind of a genius – a piece of genius. This film has much higher ambitions, though. I mean, it's much bigger ambitions because it didn't, it obviously didn't just want to be a hit. It wanted to be iconic. It wanted to be, I mean, basically the beginning of a franchise, I believe. I mean, they really wanted this to be like their Star Wars, and they'd said that in the press. Although it's hilarious that anyone would think this film could be even remotely <laughs> compared to it's like you would have to not understand what a movie is to actually believe that this movie would be a star wars none of the things that that sold star wars outside of the fact that it's sci-fi and the, the effects are impressive hey it's got cute robots in it you were talking about the budgets it's just like this cost at least twice what star wars cost at least two this would have been two star warses this movie but it it does have that I don't, I mean, I don't know what the metaphor is. It's like, it has this sheen and this bigness and this ambition that is rare and commendable. And the fact that like, you know, Ron Miller basically was like, we're going to call our old crew. Like, you know, Gary Nelson, who's like, basically did these little movies for Disney and, and, and probably, I don't have his IMDb page in front of me, but nothing like, like huge like this. Frank Phillips or, you know, and then, and then they would get a John Barry. To do the score, who was like, I'm sure profoundly expensive, and I'm sure somebody Ron Miller didn't want to pay, or Ellen Shaw to do these effects, which are just unbelievably gorgeous. And then you have dialogue like, you know, how can that lifeless derelict defy that kind of gravity? And it's just kind of like, wait a second, you have all this beautiful shit here and amazing stuff. And it's just like, and th- literally you put that, you, you gave that line to Ernest Borg, like here, Ernest say this line. What did, what must, he must've looked at that. Like, really? Okay. I'm a pro. I'm a pro. I'm going to, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to make it work. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know who can make that work. On that end. What, what killed me also is in the performance side, 
there seemed to be a sense on, on some of them, and maybe this it can be attributed to the fact that the majority of this dialogue, from what I was reading, was uh, recorded in post, you know, with the ADR. Oh, it was all because, ADR. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all ADR, which can have an effect on the uh, quality of the performance. But some of it came off just as lifeless. Robert Forster sounds like he is about to die any moment. He really does. And it was it was particularly um, stood out for Anthony Perkins, who I absolutely love. I love Anthony Perkins, but he was sleepwalking through so many of his scenes, it seemed like, and just emoting nothing. Now, there were some uh, incredible moments with him. I will say some of the interactions that he had with the Maximilian Shell, where it almost felt like it was a... I, I had it wrote it down to the notes. It was the intellectual seduction between Reinhardt and Durant. And oh, knowing what you know about Anthony Perkins, th- th- I had the feeling that he was putting a little bit of that into his performance. Those moments stood out, but so much of it was very right on the edge of wooden. Daddy, take me through the black hole. There it is. <laughs> yeah, Perkins kept reminding me of like a much more toned down Dr. Smith. More yes. Like, yeah. Parker, uh, Parker Posey, Dr. Smith. There's a gay moment, but there's been a gay – I mean, Anthony Perkins, I, I, you know, we have to just get it out there, is – was one of the best actors probably who ever graced the silver screen. He is a fantastic actor. He was fantastic on Broadway. He has given a number of roles, one of which, of course, we all know that is one of the most iconic roles in the history of cinema and probably will be forever. But all of these people, you do get the sense that – We've been shooting this movie for six months. You know, we, we show up and we do like three lines a day. Most of it's just waiting. And they're all like craft services over there waiting for the effects guys and the lighting to be all right or the, whatever gag we're doing to do it. It's like you could just feel the bigness of this production and the lack of urgency in everybody <laughs> at all times. And that does, and that does come down to the director, um, who I, from what I understand is a, a really good guy, but there's a significant quaaludization in this film where like everyone, you just, you, you should have had a little more espresso on the set. Like, okay, we got to, got to bring up the energy here. We all, you know, you almost crashed your ship. You almost all died. You're on this ghost ship. This dude is a madman. It's like let's 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 bring the energy up like two clicks. Speaking of the the downtime, uh, one of the things I also learned when uh, researching this film is apparently Maximilian Schell, when he was filming this, he was uh, in the process of editing his film uh, Tales from the Vienna Woods, and they actually had him set up an editing bay right adjacent so he That's could a work on the movie. Good use of time. It good really is, you, man. Shell is the standout performance for me. He he seems to be the one, like, okay, I'll say him and Roddy McDowell seem to be the ones that are, like, most engaged, but McDowell has the easiest role because he, you know, comes in after everything is shot and just does the voiceover for it. Apparently, on, on set, they had uh, people with horrible voices doing the voices for the computers, for the robots, so that they oh, wouldn't God. say, well, just leave it in. <laughs> Or use those guys. (laughs) That tone of how somnolent all of these actors are compared to Reinhardt, who is kind of the madman, but he's never really like frothing sometimes. You know, and it's just like I'm waiting for him to be more evil or something. Well, the accent does a lot of the work. Maximilian Schell is like, I mean, he's like Richard Burton or one of these guys. Like, you know, he's like, all I need to do is show up, 
gaze at them and say some ominous line and with my accent and it was just like everyone will think i'm acting and it's just like and, and it works i mean you know and so i mean i'm not i'm not disparaging robert forster it's like what do you do with that role that is a good actor that is a good solid actor who's been great in a lot of movies and it's like you know you're the, just the good guy you have like you know basically no arc you have no character you have no sex drive you have no nothing you're just like i'm like we we saved the ship now we're on another ship. Now we got to get out of this ship. Now we're going into the black hole. It's like, you know, that's, I mean, what do you do with that? It's like, you know, you're, you're the hero, but it's like, as an actor, I, I don't know how you could have done a better job than him, honestly. Honestly, you know, and, and Joseph Bottoms, of course, the young whippersnapper, Han Solo-esque dude. This whole movie reminds me of Lost in Space. Other than not having Penny and the other girl, I mean, this was like the mom, the dad, the older brother, basically, Dr. Smith. I mean, you almost have two Dr. Smiths between Borgnine and Anthony Perkins. Borgnine, the reporter in space, I mean, I kept thinking like, oh, this is an interesting role. What's he going to do with this? But again, not much. Well, he runs off and investigates. And we're talking about tone and just how tonally different we go from scene to scene, especially when it comes to the robots and this whole weird thing of the, let's call them stormtroopers. Uh, that they're, no, they're, like, they're the sentry robots. Yes, that they're doing target practice against. And Star, who is very – it's it's weird because I can't tell who the Darth Vader is supposed to be. Either it's Maximilian. Yeah, definitely Maximilian. There's a little bit of of Darth Vader to star though too, especially when he gets shot. It just seems like he lights up like um like Darth Vader's chest panel almost. I I did remember that. Yeah, the chest panel. There's there's something like really creepily organic. I mean, because I know they're just people in suits and stuff, but it's just like those robots and those. I don't know. I I, I can't put my finger on why it's so disturbing. Because it just doesn't like all of this feels so you're you're on the ship that is leading you to your doom. Like every moment of this movie, and, and again, John Barry's score goes a long way. And one has to wonder it, when they hired John Barry, did they expect this score? It's like I, I'm reminded of like when Martin Scorsese says that he hired Bernard Herman for Taxi Driver, and he gave him the movie, and then. You know, Bernard Herrmann came back with a score that was absolutely not what Scorsese was thinking. He was like, he was expecting more like, you know, I don't know, something like creepy or, or, you know, or, or even like obsession or, or sisters. But he got this score that was like, you know, and you know, the score to Taxi Driver is like one of the best scores ever. That saxophone and, and the jazz kind of like thing that melded with the crazy orchestral stuff. And Scorsese was just like, this wasn't the movie that I made, but oh my god, I'm not going to say no because this is amazing. And and it made the movie better. Like, the black hole, like, I feel like if you're watching it, it's like some of it's shot, it, you know, it is shot with this, again, with this kind of sleepy, <laughs> you know, this, this, this very dour, sleepy tone for at least the first, like, half or two-thirds. But one wonders if you didn't have that, like, you know – you know that whole like the the whole like oh my god is something gonna jump out and kill me moment for the entire first half of this movie how it would have felt like you know would it have been more fun quote unquote 
Yeah, and it's, it, it certainly goes a long way just to establishing that unsettling atmosphere. And so much of that gets reinforced by the choices that were made, you know, the weirdly sepulchral uh, humanoid robots that show up and just the unsettling qualities of that. And down to just the what the hell of the ending, which the, just the fact that they decided that they were going to start shooting this movie without having the ending figured out. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll got this. We don't need the last 20 pages of this script. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> they had an ending, just no one liked it. I mean, basically, this movie is the definition of painting yourself as a new corner. Okay, everyone who's out there who does screenwriting knows what I'm talking about. Basically, you paint yourself into a corner when you set up a question that the movie then can't or doesn't want to answer. In this case, the question is, what happens if you go through a black hole? Like, the whole movie, it's just like... Like, Reinhardt says, like, oh, it's amazing and you'll live forever and you're connected to God and whatever. And everyone else is just like, you're insane, we'll be crushed and it'll, you know, we'll die and it'll be terrible and whatever. And I, I want to say, like, you know, the first ending that I read was like this weird, at first it was obscure, then they did this whole thing in the Sistine Chapel, which they ended up shooting. Yeah, it was like they were coming out of the eye of God and yeah, uh, the, what's the, name? the was touching, an angel. The Michelangelo, like, God-touching Adam thing, and it, and it zooms in or out of Kate McRae's eye, and it was this big kind of, like, quasi-Catholic <laughs> story and 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 that got nixed by again ron miller who was just like that's too religious so it's just like they're shooting this movie and the question is there's a big black hole it's the title of the film it's there it could be death it could be everlasting life we don't know and at the end our heroes go into it you might want to figure out what you're trying to say with the movie then because what you're saying with the movie is obviously going to be what's in the black hole and even for people who love this movie, like me, for that ending that they have, which was reshot, like, I want to say, like, just weeks before the film opened in a gazillion theaters, it's a big effects thing with models and stuff. And it's probably the best shot. I mean, I can't think of anything better. Like, you would you would have needed to go in with an idea for that to be better. You know what I mean? It's like you would have to have a, a concept about what you're trying to say with the movie, The Black Hole, about what The Black Hole represents and what it is, and then pay it off. They did not. They were trying to make a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in Space or Star Wars, melded with Star Wars, melded with, I don't know, the Haunted Mansion. I have no idea. Like, whatever. But going through The Black Hole, if you're looking at it from a screenplay, a structural level, is is beside the point. And that's a big problem in a movie called The Black Hole. So... Yeah, they came up with this, but it's just and, – and and the effects in it, I mean, the miniatures are very impressive along with everything else. And it's very impactful aside from the whole angel with the wire hanger. Everybody who's seen this movie, it's like amazing multi-million dollar special effects. And literally at the end, they like tie some fucking white tissue paper on a goddamn wire hanger angel and fly it across the screen and it's like what are you doing like who thought of that like that is the cheesiest cheapest piece of shit i've ever seen why why are you doing that and you know it's because they 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 were they were at cross purposes. Like they wanted to spend money, they didn't want to spend money. They wanted to be profound, they didn't want to be profound. They wanted to be scary, they didn't want to be scary. They wanted to be you know for kids, they didn't want to be for kids. I mean, that's the crux of this whole movie is how it it literally wants to tear itself apart. It is a legitimately schizophrenic movie, and I love it. 
They wanted to avoid religious connotations, and then they show literal robot hell. Years and there's hell. F- Futurama. Yes, then there's <laughs> hell in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know me. I'm always looking for meaning and stuff, so I'm just like, oh, well, Cygnus the swan, and they're on the Palomino, so what do swans and horses have to do with each other? Don't. Oh, Cygnus the swan is the southern cross, and the ship kind of looks like a cross, so it's going to be penetrating the black hole. This is our intervention. Some movies, even though they're done with the best of intentions sometimes. Well, and there's a David and Goliath re- uh, reference at one point. Yeah, and- some movies have so much going on and so many cooks in the kitchen that they do not end up knowing what the fuck they're doing. And this is a prime example of what that is. But like you, I am fascinated by failures. So as you're making your documentary on Exorcist 2 Heretic. I am. Yeah, you don't get much more of a failure than that film. No, but I mean, these failures are infinitely more fascinating than sometimes even successes, you know, just to see how these things went wrong. I'll put a corollary on that. I think that I don't think that every failure is. I don't think that failures even maybe in general are, but I think that ambitious failures are, are so valuable and they don't have the kind of love that ambitious successes have or even less than ambitious successes have. Like I can talk about Exorcist to the Heretic and what it attempted to do thematically narratively, visually, and it sounds amazing. I could, I could sell this movie on paper as being like, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made because it had like John Borman had all these people and it was amazing. You know, it's like William Fraker, um, shot it and it had a huge budget, biggest in Warner Brothers history at the time. And, you know, but if you watch the film, you will see very clearly that in any conventional analysis, film doesn't work. It's not scary at all. It's not really a horror movie. And plot-wise, there are a lot of problems, and dialogue-wise, there are problems, and some performances are problematic, and uh, it was laughed off the screen. It's a huge failure, but you look at it as being like the sequel that took off in this crazy other direction that they could have just as well done another redo of The Exorcist. They could have just had another kid be possessed or have Reagan be possessed again or whatever. Instead, they went like – you know. They shot it on three continents. I mean, it was like crazy, the ambition they did. And the black hole is very similar because like you can tell this, like a good portion of the people involved in this movie wanted to do a great sci-fi movie, like a, like a 2001, like mixed with like, you know, 20,000 leagues mixed with Star Wars mixed with like, they wanted to be in that pantheon and they had the money. I mean, they had like, so much money for Disney. I mean, even for any, I mean, twenty million dollars in the late seventies. That is a huge budget. But it, you know, there weren't a lot of movies that were had bigger budgets than that. There were a few, but not many. But then you have the people in charge who obviously are like, no, we have to put some cute robots on some kids stuff. No, we have to like, you know, you know, keep it all. They they didn't want to take those risks because it's just. I mean, again, that's a huge amount of money and it would have put the company in peril. Had the movie tanked utterly, that Disney would have been in an enormous amount of trouble uh, at this point in its history. Disney was not the behemoth it is now. Disney was like the, the most of the, of the major studios. It was basically at the back. Oh, yeah. It was a bargain basement a lot of times. I mean, they were talking about selling it. I mean, like you look at the history of like the Walt Disney Company, like during this period and, and into the 80s, it was like they were very close to just not ever making movies ever again. 
Well, I remember Spielberg wanted to buy it for a little bit. The whole uh, DreamWorks SKG kind of came out of Disney saying, no, we're not going to sell. And they said, okay, well, we'll just start our own business then. And this was just a huge, I mean, you know, you look at a roulette table, like they put a lot of money on like a lot of chips on like red or, you know, one of the three and one. They, they put a lot of chips on the table in this film. Wesley Snipes will tell you, always bet on the always black hole. On black. <laughs> 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 not so much as far as the box office goes although the or movie the black cauldron yeah, yeah oh the well the black cauldron was a disaster that was that was a movie that really really lost a lot of money and that was in 85 and i think that was ron miller's last official executive producer role that sounds right and if you watch Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is a really good documentary, and I think that's on Disney Plus too, that was about uh, the, the whole renaissance of Disney animation. They go into the whole Black Cauldron where, like, I, I, I believe this is correct. I believe this is what happened. Jeffrey Katzenberg had them, like, reshoot most of the film um, because, like, they had a cut and, and it, it was the first – if if not the first, then one of the first movies they were uh, – animated films they were doing on 70 millimeter. They were shooting it on 70 millimeter. And they wanted to do these big, gigantic kind of epic things, except the movie wasn't working. It was a big, big, big disaster. The Black Hole, when it came out, was not a big disaster. It actually – it was a moderate grosser. It was It was not a hit. It was not a flop. It did okay. It was eclipsed by Star Trek. Star Trek, the motion picture came out, I think, two weeks either before or after it. I, I forget before which. It, yeah, it was right before. And then Alien was six months beforehand. But yeah, it was amazing how close Black Hole and um, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture were. And ironically, Star Trek was rated G. And the Black Hole, <laughs> distributed by Walt Disney Productions, was rated PG. So the Star Trek ended up making, I think, a lot more than the black hole did but it ended up it i believe it cost like almost twice as much as the black hole the star trek was like one of the most expensive movies ever made for a very long time the costumes of a lot of the people from the palomino were very star trek-esque you know i don't know if it was just that 70s feel that was going on or what but i was just like wow they, these guys look like they just stepped off of because those costumes for star trek the motion picture were very strange compared to what they were in the TV show or even in Star Trek two and in the next generation, they were the most 1979 period appropriate costumes that you could possibly have. <laughs> it was just like, I mean, not as good as uh, David from Star Trek two with the sweater around his neck kind of thing, but pretty damn close. I mean, you can tell that this film was influenced by every single sci-fi movie or television show possible up until this point i mean and and it's interesting because like it doesn't really forge new ground in any particular way but the way that it mixes up all of these influences is very unique and again i mean going back to what we've been saying this whole time completely schizophrenic I want to talk about the ending of the film because I, I ran across a fantastic video on YouTube the other day, which was trying to explain the ending of the film. But basically the guy said, um, if I have to explain this to you, you're stupid. Oh, Everybody Jesus. should know exactly <laughs> what is going on okay. with the ending of this film. If you don't know, you're a complete idiot. And I was just like, all right, I wow. just got insulted, but uh, okay. You're just not sophisticated enough to understand the tragedy of the story 
Alright, Rando on YouTube. <laughs> He's down a little. There's a um a book on tape version of this or, or like you know, one of those storybook versions. Oh I had it. I had the I, I had the album with the narrator being like and the lights and the sickness go up at once or something like it that that whole thing. Percy Rodriguez, the guy who used to do all those uh, amazing voiceovers for uh horror previews tonight. Is the night she comes home? <laughs> I didn't, it's the same guy. Oh my god, that's amazing! I did, I haven't heard this album since I, I was a kid. I don't even know. I'm sure it's digitally out there somewhere. Gripped by the immense gravity, the probe ship fell faster and faster into the huge whirlpool. Suddenly, everything was calm. They had come through safely. Before them stretched a giant universe filled with planets and stars that had been swallowed by the black hole. Kate was stunned. What will we do now? Well, we can't go back, replied the captain. But that's no reason to give up hope. We've been trained to find new worlds. Let's go find one for ourselves. So that was the ending that they had for that version. I hope there's a bathroom on that goddamn probe ship and maybe a little bit of, like, food or something. It's like, you know, let's find a planet. Yeah, okay. Like, yeah, you know. you probably should. You get to pee in your fucking uniforms? Like, dude, like, is there water on this thing? Is there enough oxygen? What the hell? Hey, considering the complete and utter disregard for any sort of science in this movie, the last thing they were thinking about were food and toilets on the ship. I feel like the movie is actually very, very, like, religious about, like, science, or at least their interpretation of science with, the, like, the Cygnus's energy field or whatever the fuck it is. They throw it out in the last 20 minutes. Like, like it, it is very consistent, and then suddenly the ship is being torn up, and then people are flying in space with no spacesuits and it's all a fucking mess and and you can tell it's just like all right we're gonna do this like you can tell this was late in the shoot i'm guessing it was late in the shoot it's just like okay shit's falling apart like you know the probe ship is but and the actors will be like wait aren't we in space it's like yeah but you know stuff is blowing up and stuff is happening just go just go with it okay you're like it's fine you're in space but it's like it's not bad space it's good you can breathe it's fine when the great cinematic killjoy neil degrasse tyson declared it the least scientifically accurate film ever made (laughs) (laughs) and that oh that is saying something i want to find some other nominees because the black hole doesn't deserve that it's like you know Come on. I was in high school at the time, and I could have said, look, I could have been your science advisor, and we could have done a kick-butt movie on black holes. I bet you in high school still knew a lot of science. Yeah, I taught a seminar on black holes, actually. But then there was also Alan Dean Foster writing the novelization, trying to figure out a way to make the science work. I mean, yeah, they're pretty smart when it comes to having the big garden and, you know, where they could get their food and stuff, because those lobotomized crew members still need to eat something i would imagine did you have bathroom breaks i think they just go in their suits ew why do they they look so you know harrowed when they take the mask off well okay so wait okay so the palomino shows up and like the entire ship smells like crew members pooping in their pants i would have guessed that they're not robots way before they did they get old bob to clean it all up that's why that's why he's so messed up ew 
I don't want to think about these crew members pooping. And I want to believe that even when he mind controls them with the zappy thing, and it's just like, by the way, you get a pee break every like three hours. Take advantage of it. Anyway, the ending of the movie. Um. <laughs> as soon as he sees a robot limping, I mean, the jig should have been up right there. I, I don't know why they took so long to figure out that these were humans under those outfits. But yeah, so the ending of the movie is, I mean, it's that question you were talking about before, David, as far as like, okay, what's going to happen when they go through this thing? You're right. It is very 2001 influenced, but I don't think as interesting as 2001. And then, yeah, this is where the religious stuff just comes out completely. How do we even describe it other than like religious ecstasy going on with uh, heaven and hell all going on at the same time. I mean, that's really what it is. It's it's taking an inherently religious concept and transforming it into a science fiction context. You know, the idea of heaven and hell existing as parallel dimensions that must be passed through in order to uh, – with the black hole serving as the decider of where you go. Though it was pointed out, and I wish I had thought of this earlier, one of the more kind of out there is particularly as a, seeing it as a kid, the merging – between Reinhardt and the robot Maximilian, resulting with Reinhardt being inside him or inside Maximilian's shell. Oh, oh no. Did that just happen? Did- yeah, it just happened. I have no idea if it was intentional, but God, I love oh a terrible God, pun. I can never watch this movie again and not think about that now. That moment where he's inside Maximilian, you see his eyes. First of all, like oh. I- it's, it is it has imprinted on me again <laughs> as a kid like God, like yeah. to this day i think that like that's really fucking great and you and as a filmmaker you look at it and they had to like you you look like it's hard that was a hard shot to do because they had to light his eyes so they had uh, like and this is before leds so it's like they had to have some kind of a light source inside that fucking thing have his face pressed up against it lighting his eyes and then there's that giant i mean it's basically this big track i mean it, it it cuts to a miniature but there's this big tracking back shot with him inside it there's it's one of those impressive moments in this movie that make it so important for especially people who like movies to watch and kind of savor because there's there's shit in this movie that you just i can't believe and it's like i haven't seen it anywhere else and to this day i haven't seen it anywhere else i mean it's extremely impactful stuff and yet in a movie that doesn't really work the ending feels a little unearned at times but then it's like you have had this black hole sitting there the entire time and it's like please just tell me what's going you know what happens when you go through but then they aren't going to just hand you the answers either no i mean they they were going for the 2001 and they didn't quite have the chops to pull it off instead of it becoming this great abiding cinematic mystery it just kind of becomes a what the hell happened there i I don't want to think about it (laughs) (laughs) all right we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. 
Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Entries podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmer is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well, because it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not white people it's not i hate white pe- it's dear white people it's how you start a letter the whole climax of the show is a sex scene between malchior and venla and i remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way shape or form <laughs> i'm always thinking about the audience make them feel make them laugh and make them cry i mean that's as simple as it is for me i had been not wanting to be a part of the film it was clear in the edit that i had to you know really reshape it so the film really told me what it needed to be cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're cutting that part out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwarz H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. 
tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to... All right, we are back, and we're talking about The Black Hole. I think it's pretty funny, because when I went to see Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, the only movie that I kept thinking of over and over and over again was The Black Hole, and then it was funny, I was... It wishes it were The Black Hole. I was looking up The Black Hole, and it was like, Google was like, you might also like Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. (laughs) And I'm sure Christopher Nolan is just delighted by that comparison. He can take it. I, I sat through Tenet. He can take it. I don't know which one I like less. Is it Tenet or is it Interstellar? At least Tenet was shorter, I think. I, I think I think Interstellar is a moderately better movie, but Tenet I think is probably more watchable. But I don't like either one of those films. I'm sorry. I I really appreciate them. I appreciate the 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 work that went into them. I mean, because it's undeniable. And I appreciate the ambition of, of telling original stories, um, especially ones that kind of morph with your perceptions. But yeah, I, I wish I could say I were a fan of those two movies. I, I still I still think The Prestige is his best movie. Mm, I might back you up on that one because I have a lot of affection for The Prestige. It's a genuinely good movie. And I remember seeing it in the movie theater when it came out. And I didn't know – again, talking about painting yourself into the corner the way The Black Hole did, it's like I did not know how The Prestige was going to come out of this. I was just like, where the hell are you going? Is it supernatural? Is it not supernatural? Is it sometimes supernatural? Like, what is it? And when they explained the ending and the big reveal happens, I was like, okay, this is actually kind of cool. Like, like I get what you're saying now. I get what the theme is now. And I was impressed with that. And also, David Bowie's performance as Tesla, I just loved. And I – even Scarlett Johansson, who was in it for like two seconds, I thought was great. I mean, everybody in this movie and every and the and the and the score by David Julian. I mean, we're not even we're not even talking about the black hole. We're talking about the prestige. But it's like it's it's a it's a really good, I would say, even underrated film. And I and I think it's actually his best movie. Yeah, I think it was unfortunate that it came out so close to the Illusionist, and people just didn't know what the hell was going on. It, I mean. Talking about movies that are coming out too close together. I mean, every article I was reading about the black hole was comparing it to the point of like Starburst magazine from the UK was just like, okay, who wins between black hole and Star Trek, the motion picture? And they had four or five of their critics going through and comparing, contrasting and talking about which one was better and for what reason. And Starburst, I'm, I don't know how they even survived very long because they would do this thing where they would tout a movie, have interviews, have articles, have all this stuff. And then the movie would come out and invariably they would trash it. I'm trying to remember. I think it was like when we did alienation, it was like all of these articles about alienation. Okay. This is great. And then alienation comes out and the review is this movie is terrible. It's like you guys just spent six months, every episode, every issue talking about this movie and then when it finally comes out you trash it okay this is strange at least they have some kind of uh, editorial integrity you know you know that they're they're not just kowtowing to the studios that is very true all about biting the hand that feeds them 
to the point of the comparison between these two of the the two of them, one of the things that I found interesting over the years has been sort of the critical reappraisal of Star Trek the Motion Picture. You know, for the longest time it was received wisdom that only the even numbered Star Trek movies were good. And yet I've seen a lot more people coming around to the charms and the accomplishments of that original uh, Star, uh, motion picture. I wonder if perhaps now that the black hole is more readily available, seeing as it is part of the Disney Plus streaming platform, if there is going to be a similar reappraisal of the black hole, or if it's just too out there that it'll simply d- develop a second life as just a tripped out weird little movie. The reason that Star Trek The Motion Picture, I think, was underrated at the time. I mean, it, it, I get I mean, I like Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think it's actually a good movie, but I think that the expectations for it uh, at the time were ridiculous. They were, I mean, and, and a lot of that had to do with the marketing and a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that it was such a beloved series and Star Wars had happened. And of course, this was not Star Wars at all. It was very Star Trek. And, you know, they were really compressed for time. When they made that movie, it went way over budget, way, way, way over schedule. Um, a lot of that had to do with the effects, uh, which had to be a lot of which had to be redone. Um, and, and it, and it is kind of famously one of the most arduous productions, uh, certainly of Paramount's history. And, and, and uh, I would say of that era, despite it being, you know, shot on sound stages, like all the effects and all the post production were so insanely complicated and, and had to be redone at the last second. So when the movie came out, I think that everybody had these very high expectations of like what it would be and what it ended up being was like a big 70 millimeter widescreen, like, oh, it wasn't shot in 70, but it was shown in 70, um, Dolby stereo Star Trek episode, um, a, you know, good and bad along with, you know, the cheesiness along with the grandeur of space and all that stuff. And I think, and it wasn't like this action movie. It wasn't what Star Trek two was. Which was like a lot of action. Star Trek Two has a lot of action in it. It's great. It's that's why it's like the best one of the series, really. Star Trek is more about like, look at space. It's amazing. Look at the look at the miniatures of this ship. We're going to like have this amazing Jerry Goldsmith score over like five minutes of shooting these beautiful miniatures. And it's like I think in a movie theater that would have been impressive. I think that on video, especially pan and scan video, which happened just after it, it it really was a little bit. Difficult, and I think, and I'm glad that Star Trek it has had a, a you know a reappraisal uh, because I think that it you know it's not a great film, but it's a good film, and it got shit on way too much when it came out. Um, the Black Hole, I mean, I remember it opened with I think mixed reviews. It wasn't it wasn't badly reviewed, but it certainly wasn't well reviewed. I don't know what you do with a film like this because it depends on how you review and what, you know, are you just reviewing for people who may or may not want to go see this movie? Well, then I think that a mixed review is probably correct uh, because it is a very mixed bag. But this podcast and like, you know, certainly my friends and people I talk to, we're filmmakers, we're cinephiles, we're artists. As such, sometimes we need to see movies that are maybe like, you know, even not successful, like, you know, Exorcist 2 The Heretic or one of these movies. But it's like, they have something or they tried something or there's something in them you're never going to see anywhere else. And I think that the black hole has so many of those moments that you lit like that are so unique and so powerful you know, in the midst of this movie that kind of doesn't work that it's like if you love the genre, if you love movies, uh, certainly if you love 
kind of like that era of studio filmmaking in the in the 70s in the late 70s where disney was like kind of trying to find what it wanted to be coming out of the ron miller era of like you know you know north avenue irregulars and cat from outer space and all that stuff like where are we going what are we trying to be as a as a company as an artistic organization then it's essential i mean this is an essential film to watch absolutely and it's and also in terms of just disney trying something you know, this was their attempt to transform themselves, to make, to break the out of uh, being, well, we, we make movies for kids. Well, let's try something else. And, uh, yeah, obviously it did not succeed, but in a sense, it kind of set the stage because they would, would go on to put greater emphasis into things like Touchstone and, you know, break out of strictly family friendly fare. You know, this was their faltering steps in this direction, but I'm glad that it at least succeeded enough that it allowed them to take similar risks on stuff like Tron that would come out some years later. I mean, if Tron would not have happened had the black hole like really tanked exactly or, or or even without the black hole because like the technological innovations that were used on tron i think didn't they use the the motion control that they developed on the black hole on that i i could be wrong about that but but i think they did don't know but i wouldn't be surprised oh certainly when i the first time i saw tron it was on the terrible quality broadcast over you know over antenna television and i i thought it looked terrible it wasn't until later that i saw a restored copy of it. it's like oh no this is brilliant well but also i mean you know again uh coming back to those lovely people at walt disney home video through the 80s their transfer of tron was up until I think the DVD, one of the worst transfers I have ever seen of a major motion picture ever. It is, it was like done with completely without any care or, you know, and, and seemingly without any intelligence. I mean, it's just everything looked smeary and gross. And, and again, you're talking pan and scan for a movie that was shot very deliberately wide by Steve Lisberger. Who directed it, he didn't shoot it. Um, and you know, there was stuff going on at opposite ends of the frame. I mean, it to, to watch that film, especially especially in that transfer on pan and scan video was probably like it, it did the movie the least amount of favors I can possibly imagine. Like, we, we talked about this a little bit, but let's talk about John Barry's score for a moment. Let's say that you're listening to this and you're a fan of movie scores. Let's say you know John Barry's score from like, you know, the James Bond or whatever. You know, you would not really think that this would happen. Like that this score would come from him. You know, it's this gorgeous brooding orchestral score. And I'm sure like Mike, when you put the, the trailer at the top, if you put the trailer at the top, you'll hear – a fair bit of it like it, it, and it goes on it's like it, it's an earworm it's like dun 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 and it just it's like it's like an inverted jaws in a way but again it like goes back to tone it's like is this a suspense movie is this a action movie is this a sci-fi like what is this what are what emotion are we trying to engender in any part of this and Really, it's like, I think that what you were saying before is like, it's far more like a disaster movie in a way, uh, than, than Star Wars. The unsettling tone that comes from the, uh, the score. I mean, it cannot be, uh, overstated. It's, it's so impactful for establishing this tone which can be you know disconcerting for people that don't that come in with the preconception of oh this is going to be you know this is going to be star wars or oh it's disney this is going to be a family-friendly thing 
it is something else. And so much of that tone gets defined by this incredible Barry score. The trailer for this film haunted me forever. It's it's a very, very impactful trailer, especially if you were a kid. I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. You mentioned right at the get-go, Al Goro, the whole idea of Yvette Mimu being psychic. And it's like it comes up here and there, and then they drop it, and then it'll they'll bring it back. And the whole thing of like how her father was on the Cygnus, it's like, okay, I kept waiting for there to be like a psychic connection between her and her father. And instead we get the psychic connection between Vincent and her. And that was just like, I could, it's weird because I could buy ESP. Okay, cool. <laughs> I can buy that these robots are actually people with, you know, masks on and everything. But the idea of the robot communicating to her telepathically, I was just like, no, that's like the bridge too far. And I don't know why that is. As much as I was mocking it in the beginning, I actually really like that element because it speaks to an era of science fiction where you did kind of had this broad umbrella of concepts of which ESP was included in that. And you didn't really need a whole explanation for it. They simply mentioned it. It was part of this world. It was something that was commented upon. And it was a freer expression of science fiction in an era where you have endlessly uh endless youtube videos of people breaking down and criticizing the science behind science fiction or the aforementioned neil degrasse tyson referring to this as the most scientifically inaccurate film ever made it's nice to go back to an earlier era of science fiction where the creators weren't as handcuffed i mean there were people that were certainly working in uh hard science fiction at this time. And yes, they even hired a science fiction writer in order to uh, serve as a consultant on this film. Unfortunately, they hired Harlan Ellison, who promptly got fired because apparently in the cantina he was pitching an animated porno between Disney characters, and Ron Miller overheard him because because Harlan Ellison's got a Harlan Ellison. But, you know, it, it, it speaks to a freer era of science fiction. We're bitching about Kate McRae and the ESP, but like, Deanna Troy... You can't tell me. That's like a direct line. I am absolutely fine with their I mean, this is however many years in the future where we can fly to a black hole and, you know, we're traveling and we've got holograms and all this kind of stuff. Being psychic is not the bridge too far. That's absolutely fine. I'm absolutely okay with there being psychic powers on here. That's great. I just wish they would have like utilized it a little bit more and had there be more of a a plot thing. It, it, it's very Deanna Troy because Deanna Troy's powers come to naught like ninety percent of the time. It's just like, okay, what are you doing with your? empathic powers you know since she's only half betazoid she could see a screaming alien and say i sense he's angry she, she walks into the room and she's like pain pain oh but there was that one episode where she was pissed off remember the episode where she just like yelled at everybody all the, the whole episode and, and even Riker was just like hey what are you talking about what is the imzadi? Wasn't that the word, like the the lover word or whatever it was? Like imzadi, and she goes, "Oh, please!" I'm like, "Diana, I want a martini with you right now. We're gonna we're gonna sit down. You're gonna get all this off your chest, and you know it'll be it'll be better in the morning." Something tells me that was probably something that her mother did. Her mother's always messing with stuff. 
All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Close Encounters of the Third Kind begins in an Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. We are not alone. A Columbia Pictures presentation... That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Until then, I want to thank my co-host this week, David E. El Goro. El Goro, what's been going on with you? Well, at the time of this recording, we just wrapped up our month devoted to animation over on the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. And now I'm back on to the Patreon-selected stuff. We had a Guy Ritchie double feature of Snatch and the recently released Gentleman from right before when the pandemic uh, dropped off. So that was I was catching up with that film. And coming up is kind of appropriate enough for the black hole. is going to be Cinematic Examinations of the Afterlife with 1991. Defending Your Life. Uh, that's an Albert Brooks film, if I recall correctly. Yes, and it's so good. I've heard it's I've heard it's good. I haven't caught up with it yet, but I'm certainly looking forward oh. to watching it and discussing it on the show. And then 1998, What Dreams May Come, with uh, Robin Williams, a not great adaptation of Richard Matheson's book, but it's it'll be fun discussing the differences. Be sure to dig around. There's a work print of that that has uh, a. If memory serves, it's got some big differences in there. That I will have to seek out, so thanks for that. And then I'm excited that we'll be talking next week about uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We will! You got me back-to-back on these. Which is a much better movie than The Black Hole, but I look forward to listening to that. You know what? I saw them both when I was a kid, and I I think The Black Hole gave me more nightmares, so that has that going for it. I mean, listen, the black the black hole, as I said, impacted me for I have a black hole poster in my apartment. I mean, Close Encounters is a better movie, uh, but the black hole as a kid, it literally changed the way I looked at movies. Like for the first time I saw like, oh, wait, characters can die. People can die. Like there are sometimes like like because basically this is a no win situation. Like you can be in a no win situation. You could just be like, oh, we have to land on this ship because, you know, and then it's a madman and you have to fight your way off, but you end up going in the black hole anyway. It's like, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of existential moments to be (laughs) gleaned from this, I guess, if you're a kid. And David, what's going on in your world, sir? Well, the second season of the podcast I host and produce, which is the outcast presented by outfest, uh, just started. I just talked to the guys from pose, um, the, the showrunner and two of the stars. Oh, nice. I love that show. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a good episode. Um, and I mean, last season, uh, was the first season for this podcast. Outfest is an organization out here in Los Angeles that runs the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Film Festival among tons of other programs. So they're a really important, uh, LGBTQ arts and entertainment organization. And this is their first podcast. So I was really like very, uh, you know, thrilled and, 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 uh, uh, humbled to be asked to do this. Um, and last season I talked to a lot of people like John Cameron Mitchell and, and Christine Vachon and, uh, Justin Simeon and, and Jonathan Groff and Laverne Cox. And it was really great. Uh, and when they brought me back this year and, um, we have a lot of guests that are fantastic lined up. The first episode just dropped last week. The second episode, uh, is dropping this coming week. And we have 10, uh, at least, uh, on the way. And my documentary, which I talked about earlier on Exorcist to the Heretic, which is going to be called Heretics, Brushed by the Wings of Exorcist 2, 
uh, is going to be released next year, at least on the festival circuit. And, uh, we're, I know we're still shooting. I did a shoot yesterday with the script supervisor and I'm doing more shoots in New York in a couple of weeks and then more shoots in July. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see where and when it premieres in 2022, but it will. Um, and we're like just so excited about it. I, it's been three or four years making it. And, you know, we talked to John Borman and Linda Blair and Louise Fletcher and, and, and tons of other people. Just amazing story. So I believe, uh, there's a URL for it, but there's nothing on it yet called hereticsmovie.com. You know, within a few months, I'm sure something will be up on that. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Thank you.